scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles, in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Keep politics out of the pulpit. In what respect, I fully agree with that statement. Preaching is not the place for endorsing a political candidate or a political party or the platform of a political party. We are not in the business of shaping you into an elephant or a donkey. We are in the business of shaping you into conformity with Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Bible does speak of civil authority. It does not ignore the topic completely. It shows us throughout the course of the scriptures Number one, it can show us how chaotic and destructive human relationships can be when there is no civil authority, or at least not much civil authority, as in the time of the judges. Everyone just did what was right in his own eyes. It didn't end up very well, if you read that book. It also shows us how oppressive and how destructive civil authority can be when it is abused, as in most of the kings of Israel, As in the kings of Babylon and many of the emperors around the Israelites, the pharaohs, the family of Herod, the list goes on and on. Leaders abusing their authority. It also shows us how civil authorities at times can be helpful to the people of God and to humanity in general. Such as Joseph's work with Pharaoh in Egypt, providing food. Or the Persian kings who let the Jews go back to their homeland and even help finance the rebuilding of their temple. As we enter 2020 and trying to think of which lessons that I think are most important for us going into a new year, one area that I wanted to address and one area that I want us to be praying about and focusing on is our attitude toward politics in an upcoming election year. I say that because I know a lot of us didn't handle 2016 nearly as well as we should have as the people of God. And I say that because we are still living in a very polarized point in time where there is a lot of passion, there's a lot of partisanship, and there's not enough careful, nuanced thinking. This is an area where the people of God cannot conform to the ways of the world. We must rise above the vicious and mostly unproductive nature of most current political discourse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, which was read for us today, 
is about politics. But it's also about prayer. And it's about something else which we're going to get to because this passage is going to move us towards something else. So as we are talking about Christians and civil authorities, and I realize there's several passages in the Bible that are relevant to this today, but from this particular passage, from 1 Timothy 2, I want us to ask this text today to help us decipher these questions. What is our posture towards civil authority, toward government authority around us on whatever level, whether it's local, whether it's in our particular system, state government, national government? Secondly, what do we pray for specifically in regards to civil authority? If we are to pray for them, the text says that we are, what specifically are we praying about? What's our aim? What's our goal? And third, and I'll leave this one a little bit open for, for you to, for it to unfold for you, but where does this passage ultimately move our focus beyond just politics? Let me tell you a story about the Jewish people. Several generations before Jesus, they returned to their homeland from exile. And it was a privilege for them to be able to go home again. But they never really had their independence. They never really had the, were able to set up their own civil authorities. At least not until many generations later when a family by the name of the Maccabees led a rebellion and drove out the foreign dictator of that time. Now they could set up their own government as they wanted it to be, but this independence, as often is the case, was short-lived. Soon they were once again under the control of another foreign power, this time the Romans, and this time it was going to last a while. And that relationship with the Romans was a bit shaky. It would probably depend on who you ask among the Jews how that relationship with the Romans is. On, the, on one hand, you know, it's a, it's a decent relationship. They are allowed to practice their religion. They're allowed to, to uh, you know, have their places of, of worship, worship their God. There was some degree of religious tolerance in the Roman Empire. On the other hand, if you ask some Jews, they would say that relationship was terrible. They felt like the Romans were oppressive to them. They felt like they could not carry out their entire law as they wanted to. One example of that is, you know, as in the case of Jesus, they can't just execute him on their own. They have to go get the Roman permission to be able to do that. They have to seek out civil authorities of higher uh, powers in order to be able to do that legally. They don't like that. They want to be able to carry out the entirety of their law as they want to. Some resentment starts building among the Jews toward their civil authorities, most particularly among a group called the Zealots. But before the Zealots really get control of things in Palestine, many of the Jews start a practice. It was the practice of other temples throughout the Roman Empire, the pagan temples, you know, to other gods. They would offer sacrifices. But they would offer a sacrifice among their sacrifices to other gods. They would also offer a sacrifice to Caesar, once Rome had become an empire, to Caesar and to his family. The Jews knew they could not do that. That was idolatry for them, to offer a sacrifice to Caesar. But they did start offering a daily sacrifice for Caesar and his family. 
going to God on behalf of Caesar and his family, on behalf of the governing authorities. And this lasted for many generations until those zealots gained control of things and they were tired of living under this other government that they thought was not their own and they decided we're going to fight a war against this. And so they drive the Romans out of Jerusalem and they start a war against them in 66 AD, a generation after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so begins the war between the Romans and the Jews. And one of the things that they immediately do in Jerusalem is they stop offering the sacrifice on behalf of Caesar and his family. Four years later, they're completely broken. The Romans have crushed them. They thought that we cannot exist unless we have control of the civil authorities. And it wasn't like it had been before with the Maccabees. This time it doesn't end well for them. Now there's a lot of lessons in this for us as a people of God. Number one is this. We should be making the sacrifice, what the New Testament calls sacrifice, the sacrifice of our lips, prayer to God. We should be making the sacrifice of our lips, the prayers in the form of entreaties and petitions to our God on behalf of our civil authorities on all levels. It's a privilege to be able to offer intercessory prayer on behalf of all people, but especially for those who are in positions of decision-making. And that's a lot of what 1 Timothy 2 draws us to in what we do, what we have a chance to do. Secondly, though, we must be willing to do this in season and out of season, whenever we want to and whenever we don't. Whenever the people you like are in positions of power and whenever they're not. It's amazing how much attention Christians pay to first passages like 1 Timothy 2, which tells you to pray for your leaders, and then attention they pay to Romans 13, which tells you to submit to your government, to pay attention to those passages and to preach those passages, talk about them a lot, whenever their political party of choice is in control of Congress or is in control of the presidency. And how much they don't want to talk about those passages when another party is in control. Remember that in the time that Paul writes this, there are some rotten dudes who, who are in that Roman government. Not all of them, but there are some rotten ones. There are some incompetent ones in high places. And yet he still says to pray for them. If their behavior or their decisions baffle you, if you disagree with them, and perhaps they need prayer all the more. Third, what I take from that story of the Jewish people, making sacrifice for these authorities is by no means making sacrifice to these authorities. And we've got to understand that distinction. Because I'm, I'm convinced a lot of us don't get that. Now, we may say that, well, sure, we, 
we're not, we're, we're like the Jews, you know, we refuse, we're not the pagan temples who offer a sacrifice to, to these people as if they're gods. We don't pray to them. Of course we don't do that. That would be idolatry. Yeah, but look at what we do. Some of us develop a loyalty to a political party or a person which is downright cultish. We feel like we're in an alliance with them. No matter what, we, we sing hymns to a nation. And we have a worship-like reaction when we see a flag. Many of us do. Nationalism is a religion for many people in this world. It's the primary religion for many people in this world, including a lot of Americans. Be careful where your allegiance lies. You may be more like the pagan temples than you think in where you offer. So the child of God's posture towards civil authority, it should be one of respect. But be careful about complete allegiance. We are priests to God on behalf of our government. Now think about that. And I really think that's what this passage is getting at. That's why he says here, I want you to focus on the opportunity that you have. If you can go to God in prayer through your mediator, Jesus, who's mentioned in this passage as being in that role, you can approach God in prayer. You can do that not only for yourself, not only for your own needs, but on behalf of all people. And then he narrows that focus, particularly those who are in positions of leadership, of authority, of decision-making. And he mentions the idea of kings and others who are in position of, uh, of, of authority. I think for us, we should apply that on the local level too, very much so. Do you pray for the local school board? Do you pray for, for decisions that are, are made with tax money? Do you pray for, for uh, other things that, that go on and not just complain about them? Do you pray about them? We are in a position of being able to be priests to God on behalf of all these leaders around us. Let's take advantage of that. Now the next question that comes in, well, what exactly are we praying for? What's the end of this prayer? What's our aim here? What's, what's our goal? Well, it could be many things, but according to this passage, what does this passage focus on? I certainly don't think it's wrong to pray for a just society. I don't think it's wrong to pray for, for good things to happen to, for humanity in general. We need to be praying for those things, and civil authorities will play a role in that. But according to this passage, our primary focus of our prayer for our civil authorities is that we can live a life that's characterized four ways. Peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified. Now the meaning of that cannot be that your peace, your godliness, your dignity depend on an upright government upholding good and just laws. A lot of Christians have lived godly and dignified lives and have had God's peace which passes all understanding even when they lived in a very unjust society, even when they lived in a place that was very oppressive to them, dangerous to them, killed them. And I think the angle of this prayer is that we pray that the authorities will be able to keep as much peace as is possible and that we can handle our pursuit of godliness with as little conflict 
with the civil government as possible. That is not a necessity, but it is a blessing that we should pray for and we should aim for. We should expect to be persecuted according to the teachings of Jesus. According to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who seek to live godly lives will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't always come from government. That can come in a lot of different forms. Now, the first persecution that Christians faced was not from the Romans. It was from the Jews. It was from those who weren't necessarily the civil authorities. It was just, you know, those who were in a position of being able to to, to organize some opposition to them. We expect to be persecuted, but there is no need for us to have a persecution complex where we go looking for it every day. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? We, we want to seek, we're, we're going to be opposed, we know that. But we pray, we don't go looking for trouble. We want to be able to move about as freely in our work and in our talk about Jesus as much as possible. So we pray about that. God is the God of life. He wants His people to be faithful to Him even if they are killed for doing so. Absolutely. And He honors them for that. But ultimately, He's still a God of life. He wants humanity to flourish as much life and peace and justice as is possible in society is going to be a good thing. And so we pray for that. But the kingdom of God does not depend on the kingdoms of this world for its existence or for its thriving. Let's remember that. If America goes down in heaps tomorrow, the kingdom of God is still here just as much as it was before. If any nations of the world go down, and they will, they always do throughout history, the kingdom of God lasts. That's why that's where our primary focus needs to be. Look at the contrast in this passage. I want you to look at it in your text if you got open. First Timothy chapter 2. I want you to see some things. Look at the contrast between the word all and the word one. All men, verse 1. All in positions of authority, verse 2. All are in need of salvation, according to verse 4. That's just why Jesus came. It was for their salvation. All have been ransomed by Jesus, according to verse 6. You following those? You see the word all coming up in those passages? That's important. But also look how the word one is used in this passage. One God, verse 5. One Mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, verse 5. And that one God, look closely at verse 3, that one God is also called Savior. Now, in a first century context, when this is written, Savior is a political term. It's a term that Caesar often used of himself or a military general would use of himself. If he went out and conquered, he would be called a savior. He would be lauded as such. Look at where this passage is moving us. It's moving us away from a worldly view of politics and toward a greater focus. Savior is intentionally removed from the realm of worldly politics, from the kingdoms of the world in this passage, 
and it is given to God himself. The all are important. We pray on behalf of the all. But not one of the all is anything like the one. None of the all of the leaders who are around us, none of them are God. None of them are Savior. None of them are someone in whom you should invest your hope, your trust. Pray for all in a position of authority, but Jesus is the ultimate one in authority. He's the only King of Kings. His kingdom is where our focus ultimately is. His kingdom is where our hope ultimately is. If you follow the progression of ideas in this passage, I'm convinced this talk about salvation. You know, you start over here and you, you let's, let's pray for those in a position of authority. Let's, let's talk about what our aim is. It's so that we can live as, as quiet, dignified, godly life as possible, that the conditions will be, will, will allow us to flourish in that as much as possible. But ultimately, where does this passage move us? It moves us back to God as our Savior in the message of salvation. Jesus Christ giving himself as a ransom for all people. Paul even says right here, of all the things that, that he could have been appointed to do, he was made an apostle and a preacher of this message. Salvation in Jesus Christ. If we want to change the world for the better, if we want it to be a more loving and just place, only so much of that can happen from civil authorities. Some of it, yes. The Bible gives us examples of some of that. Leadership can be important in that. But if we want the world's people to be reconciled to God and to be transformed, to be different in their behavior, that doesn't happen from the top down of policy that your society sets or whoever is in a position of power. That's only going to happen through your personal conversations that you have with people as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. That's only going to happen through individual hearts turning to Jesus in faith, being baptized into him, and being regenerated, being reborn, being transformed. No one who dictates policy or a judge that sits in a courtroom, as important as their decisions are, None of that is going to actually transform people's hearts. You know, Paul had Roman citizenship. The Bible tells us that. He used it at times to his advantage. He conversed with civil authorities. He knew the law court system. He had respect for Caesar and he had respect for other governors that he, he talked with. And I'm convinced if he's following his own words from 1 Timothy chapter 2, he spent time in prayer for all of these people on their behalf, making sacrifice to God on their behalf. But he did not think that changing Caesar's kingdom and changing Caesar's leaders was going to be the work to which he was appointed to do. It was not his primary focus. And that's not just because he's an apostle. That's not just because he's a preacher. That's because he's a Christian. It's because he's part of a higher kingdom. It's because he didn't put his hope, his trust in Caesar. Here's my plea with you today from this passage. 
I know we've got a lot of opinions, sometimes strong opinions. I know we get frustrated. Look at how divided our country is in so many ways right now. In 2020, here's what I, my plea is for us. Be careful how much time and passion you invest in American politics. Beware of how much your political news is shaping you and how you see the world. Especially be careful how you converse with others who differ with you. Even if you know they're wrong, as you always do. What does the last verse of our reading say? Verse 8, right after all this discussion about prayer, about Jesus as Savior, last verse of our reading, verse 8, it said that our prayer should be without wrath and dissension. Now, that's especially among Christians. But don't let these things divide us. But even in our conversations with people of the world, be careful of the impression that you give. And I'm not just talking about what you say out loud with the words of your mouth. I'm talking about what you write on social media. I'm talking about... You know, how we go about our business in talking about issues that are important. Be careful how we handle them. Pray for the civil authorities. They need them right now. They're making some tough decisions right now. Pray for peace. Pray for justice. Especially pray that the people of God will be able to live peaceful quiet, godly, and dignified lives. But do not forget your greater focus. You may have citizenship here, but this is still a kingdom of the world. It's flawed, and it's temporary, and it's limited in what it can accomplish. Whereas the kingdom of Christ has a perfect king. It is permanent in its duration. And it has a message that can transform lives. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you on behalf of everyone who's gathered here today for our hearts. May we be in a right relationship with you. As this passage is has told us we have a great privilege of coming before your throne of grace in the name of Jesus on behalf of all the people around us, even of the world. So, Father, we do not just pray for fellow Christians today. We pray for for all who are in positions of authority. We pray today on behalf of uh, the president of this country, on behalf of his cabinet, on behalf of of our members of Congress, of our Supreme Court justices. We pray on behalf of other judges, lawyers throughout this country who do such important work. We pray for justice to be done. We pray for the local school board here. We pray for uh, local law enforcement, for others who are in a position of, of making policy and carrying that out. We pray for wisdom for all of them. Uh, We pray ultimately, Father, that 
the decisions that are made will be good for human flourishing as you see what is good and ultimately will allow us as your people to continue to be able to to live a life that is characterized by godliness and peace and a quiet, dignified life. May we build as good a reputation as we can with the outside world in the way that we handle these conversations. In a world where we see so much hatred and so much name-calling and so much else that is going on in discourse about issues, may we rise above that. May we be in step with Jesus Christ in the way we think and talk about these issues. Father, ultimately we thank you for Jesus and for his salvation. And may that message, just as Paul saw that as the reason he was, was appointed, his primary work was to get that message out. Use us to get that message out. Use us to not just talk with people about how they're voting, and ultimately to talk with them about have they been reconciled to you? Do they have a real peace in their lives? Are they longing for, for something else that they're not going to find from just decisions that are made on, in policy? Help us to point them to you. Help us in all of this, Father, as we enter a new year with new opportunities guide us to do your work. And we ask this in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, we're going to sing a song of invitation. If you are here and you're struggling with something in your life that you'd like the family of God to pray about on your behalf, we have that privilege of approaching our God on behalf of each other too. And we, we hope that you'll allow us to do that on your behalf today. If you're here and, and you need to talk about becoming a Christian, if you haven't been baptized into Christ by faith in the working of God for the remission of your sins, if you haven't been raised with Him to walk in newness of life, then Jesus Christ died as a ransom for all people. He died for you. And you need Him. And you will not be transformed into the person you want to be unless you are in Him. It's a delusion if we think that we can be. We plead with you today to give your heart over to Him. If you have a need today, please come as together we stand and as we sing.